This is Africa Digest. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are broadcasting from Johannesburg in South Africa and on frequency 9625 kHz on the 31-meter band to Southern Africa. We're also on Channel 902 on the DSTV Bouquet. My name is Spumela Lezondi with Onel Nsinti, Wissani Matebula and Tamek Boza. Let's take a look at the top stories. Burundi police claim to have seized weapons and ammunition after a massive search operation. The second Africa-Japan Investment Forum begins in Ethiopia. In economics, Actus has bought a South African furniture retailer and in sports, South Africa's Bafana Bafana camp update. Here's Onel Nsinti with your news. Thank you, Spumelele, and a very good afternoon to our listeners. Now, looking at your news update, two Malayan soldiers have been killed when unidentified gunmen attacked a checkpoint on the outskirts of Timbuktu. This is fueling concern at simmering violence following a breakdown in a peace accord. A AU-backed peace deal signed in June between the government and rival armed groups has unraveled in recent weeks after pro-government militia drove into territory held by Tuareg separatist rebels. The militia agreed last week to withdraw from the town of Anifis but has yet to do so. Nigerian prosecutors on Tuesday laid a charge of unlawful possession of arms against the former National Security Advisor of ex-President Goodluck Jonathan. Prosecutor Muhammad Diri at the Federal High Court in Abuja said investigators found several weapons in Dasuki's residence during a raid by security agents following his sacking by newly elected President Muhammadu Buhari in July. Dasuki has pleaded not guilty to the charges. He was granted bail after the judge ordered that his international passport be deposited with the court. Burundi police have seized several weapons and ammunition in and around the capital, Bujumbura. This following a massive search operation conducted in some neighborhoods in the capital. In the Jabe neighborhood, police spokesperson Pierre Nkurukia claimed to have apprehended a man who confessed to being part of a gang, collecting weapons to a neighboring country's for military training. Bernard Bankukira reports from Bujumbura. In a press conference held late in the evening of this Monday by the police to give an account on the outcomes of the operation, Pierre Mouriquier, the police spokesperson, showed to journalists several military and police objects seized during the operation in the area and in other neighborhoods of Chibitoke and Kinama in the Tahangwa northern commune of the capital Bujumbura and also in Musaga one of the opposition strongholds in southern Moha commune. Police will conduct similar operations in other corners of the country whenever needed. The National Assembly in South Africa is set to debate the leading party's opposition Democratic Alliance's motion calling for an ad hoc committee on whether President Jacob Zuma should be removed from his office or not. The deal alleges that President Zuma violated his oath of office by ignoring a court order preventing Sudanese President Omar al-Bashir from leaving the country during an AU summit in Johannesburg, DA leader Musi Maimane explains. 
a court ruled to say that the executive overreached. And we believe in this instance there must be some accountability. And we think that the Section 89 of the Constitution says that a president cannot stay in office if they grossly violate the Constitution of the Republic. Here, court has found against President Zuma, and we are of the view that he has grossly violated the Constitution. A judge, it's not the DA saying it, a judge argued the case to say the executive overreached and ultimately violated a very serious principle of the rule of law. And finally, hundreds of patients are protesting in Cameroon as the country runs short of treatment for kidney failures in all of its health establishments. Most of its hemodialysis equipment is in need of repay. Many patients have died and many others say they may follow in if the life-saving treatment is not made available. Moki Kinzeka has more. Cameroon has 10 centers for the treatment of acute hemodialysis complications in end-stage renal disease patients. Renal disease expert von Wamajer says the situation in the centers became bad when equipment got broken by overuse, age and insufficient maintenance technicians. Biological engineer Marlies Noni says patients will only start receiving normal treatment when spare parts for the dialysis equipment are imported from Europe. Cameroon's health minister, Andre Mamafuda, has called on the patients to exercise patience until the situation is solved. Channel African News, I am Onilin Sinti. Thank you very much. On a late 17.06 Central African time, Burundi police say to have seized weapons and ammunition after a massive search operation conducted from Sunday evening till yesterday in some neighborhoods in the capital, Puchumbura. In the Jabe neighborhood, the police spokesperson, Piyang Nkuruyike, claims to have apprehended a man who confessed to being part of a gang collecting weapons to a neighboring country for military training. From Puchumbura, our correspondent Bernard Bangkokira reports. The neighborhood of Jabe is located in the newly created commune of Mukaza in the center of the capital Bujumbura. It is among the areas which strongly opposed the third term of President Pierre Nkonosiza with many of his residents engaging in a fierce confrontation with police. Currently, it remains one of the famous opposition strongholds in Bujumbura. Early this August, the police conducted a search operation but did not manage to get any weapon, although for some time, sporadic gunshots and grenade explosions could be heard. The Sunday to Monday operation was ever a major success for the police force in that area. In a press conference held late in the evening of this Monday by the police to give an account on the outcomes of the operation, Pierre Mouriquier, the police spokesperson, showed to journalists several military and police objects says during the operation which started on Sunday evening to continue till Monday afternoon in the area and in other neighborhoods of Chibitoke and Kinama in the Tahangwa northern commune of the capital Bujumbura and also in Musaga, one of the opposition strongholds in southern Moha commune. Yesterday, police launched a search operation in a plot at Jaber and seized weapons and military tools. Today, the police conducted another series of search operations, not only in Jaber, but also in Musaga, Chibitoke and Kinama. Police will conduct similar operations in other corners of the country whenever needed. So, on Sunday, around 17.30 in Jaber, the police conducted a search operation in a plot and seized weapons 
weapons made of three short machine guns with three full magazines, 1,175 bullets, hand grenades, several tools like military and police uniforms, and so on. Police also seized a receipt book and a 19 fundraising list, medical materials, and others. The police also apprehended the person who confessed that all those materials belonged to him and his fellows, saying that they were collecting all those things so as to shift them in a neighboring country for a military training for a future criminal attack against Burundi. Police arrested also three illegal immigrants. In Kinama, police arrested also another three illegal residents, a Rwandan, a Congolese, and a Burundian. We also seized the quantity of cannabis, 20 liters of a prohibited drink. One person was apprehended, accused of distributing military tools to a criminal gang. In Mosaga, police seized also illegal alcohol and several military tools. In Chibitoke, no person was arrested or seized objects. As allegations accuse police to have harassed innocent civilians and even stolen goods and money, Tienhuriki calls whoever feels hurt to seize the competent authorities. If there is anyone who estimates their rights were violated, they have full rights to seize competent authorities for rehabilitation. These competent authorities are investigation services, especially police officers or the court. They have the full rights to seize all those services and file a case and they will be rehabilitated. Although the government of Burundi claims that the whole country is peaceful, Burundi remains under the strains of a political crisis that broke out on April 26th in the wake of the announcement of Pian Kurunziza's candidacy for his third presidential term that he won on July 21st controversial polls. Although protests against his third term have been quelled, targeted killings and grenade explosions and gunfire are not letting up in the country. Regional leaders, the African Union and the international community, including the United States and the United Nations, have urged political leaders in Burundi to resume dialogue and resolve their differences peacefully, but till now, no progress has been made. For Channel Africa, this is Bernard Bankukira reporting from Bujumbura. If you want to get hold of us about Bernard's story or any other story that we have in the program, remember that you can find us in social media. We are on Twitter. We are on Channel Africa One over there. It's Channel Africa One on Twitter. You can also send us emails. We are on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, the second Africa-Japan Investment Forum has begun in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. The forum has attracted high-level business community with the aim of extending their business business partnership with Africa. Japan is among the countries that have little investment in Africa and their intention to approach the continent now is being seen by Africans as a great move. Kaleta Wanjohi reports. Japan has for years invested more in Asian countries. Africa has not been a priority for this Asian country that is considered as one of the tiger economies in the world. Statistics from the African Union suggest that Japan's investment in Africa is approximately only $25 billion, an amount that is highly challenged by other countries from the East, like China. But now Japan is showing interest to increase its investment in Africa, citing the advantage of the continent like massive human resource as well as plenty of natural resources in Africa. Kazuhiro Suzuki is the ambassador of Japan to Ethiopia. He says that there is a communication gap between Japanese business people and Africans. They each don't understand how the other work and think. There is a clear increase of interest by the Japanese business people to come and invest, try to do something here in Africa. 
but, but uh, we are slow. We are, we t it takes time for Japanese to invest, and the African business people should understand that. Why? Because uh, we, we have uh, adherence, very strong inclination to the quality. As uh, uh, Dr. Arkeva said, quality is a very important element for Japanese investment, Japanese business. And then to uh, uh, improve the quality, you really need to have uh, you know, good vocational training, human resource development, uh, precise processing, and, and etc., etc. And it takes time. The African Union Commissioner for Trade, Fatima Asil, however, insists that this moment, Africa is moving towards strategic partnership and not one that will have raw materials being driven out of the continent. Because uh, the way we are growing today is not sustainable. We're talking about growth, we're talking about commodities, export of raw material. Africa is no longer talking about exporting of raw material. We do not want business just to be strictly raw material. We want transformation in this continent. Our youth are dying on the seas. We want to create opportunities in this continent for our youth. We want to attract investment in here. And I think it's very important that we also say that now we're talking about a continental free trade area. Continental free trade area by 2017, Africa will be seen as a continent, a continental market. Africa will be a, you know, an emerging continent whereby any company can be set up anywhere in Africa, produce in Africa, and the demand is here, so ship in Africa. So again, this is really a good business case for company to come, and I think that Japan is, is not going to be left over. Some of the challenges of the Japanese investing in Africa include the fact that Japanese have a tendency to invest a very small amount of money in a host government, and this tends to not only discourage great cooperation from the host countries, but also make other countries seem more serious. This is because the same investment climate in Africa is facing competition from other countries like China that have proven that they can pour millions of dollars in the continent without fear. Colette Enjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital. Your time is 17.14 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now the International Organization for Migration, IOM, has resumed its emergency evacuation of South Sudanese refugees from the Ethiopian border, which had been halted since late July as all receiving camps had reached their maximum capacity. Following the establishment of the Pognido 2 camp, IOM has already evacuated more than 3,000 people into it. Despite the currently signed South Sudanese peace deal announced last week, refugees are still crossing into Ethiopia, with a previously arrived refugees seeking evacuation to save camps inside the country. Here's Itai Veriri, who is the IOM spokesperson. As you know, we have a situation of uh, South Sudanese refugees who have been escaping, uh, seeking sanctuary in neighboring countries. And Ethiopia is one of those countries that a lot of them have gone to. There are a few camps in, in Ethiopia, and one of them is Pognido 2 camp, which is run by the authorities there. And up until recently, I'll say as maybe up to late July 2015, the camp was so full that there were no spaces for new refugees to be brought in. So the authorities then extended what used to be, uh, I suppose, Pognido 1 camp into Pognido 2, which raised its accommodation by 50,000. So 
at the time, unfortunately, IOM could not evacuate refugees who were on the border with Ethiopia until that camp had been expanded. And I understand that very recently IOM managed to relocate more than 3,000 refugees into this new camp. Are you still continuing with the relocations? And just how big are the numbers of people who need to be relocated, if you could give us an estimate? Well, I, I don't have exact figures right now, but what I can tell you is that right now Ethiopia probably has, I think, up to 20,000 uh, South Sudanese refugees living in different border camps. And so we expect that the numbers of those who will be relocated to this new camp will certainly be significant. Uh, I would say we expect by uh, October 2015, which is next month, that those 20,000 will start moving into the new camp. Just to give you the scope of the figures, since the conflict broke out in December 2013, 221,000 refugees have crossed into Ethiopia seeking asylum. And uh, this includes around 46,000 who have been uh, moved from camp to camp. And in, in our role in all this has been to move over 250,000 migrants to safe areas in the regions of Gambela and Benin Shangu in Ethiopia. Now, Itai, you are dealing with relocating people into this new camp. Where are they currently being sheltered? How are they coping before you get through them to relocate them into a refugee camp? What exactly is their state? Yes, quite a lot of them will be staying in uh, different border camps. So that's uh, obviously the border between South Sudan and Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. But the conditions under which they are living obviously are not, uh, in fact, they are not ideal at all. So our mandate really is to ensure that they are evacuated as soon as possible and as humanely as possible without any too much disruption. The fact that now we have a bit more space in uh, Pognito 2 camp means that at least we, we have somewhere to relocate them to. And it was quite uh, you know unfortunate that we had to, to stop the evacuations since late July. But uh, as I've said, you know, we, we, we are hopeful that we'll be able to move significant numbers over the coming weeks and months. And finally, Itai, I understand that even though you are dealing with relocating people from unsuitable conditions, you are also still expecting a lot of people from South Sudan, despite the signing of a peace deal in their country, you're still expecting refugees to be coming to Ethiopia. Yes, I mean, as you know, the reality in some of these situations is that the word uh, filters down to the affected populations very slowly. So whilst there might be a peace agreement signed in recent days, people are still moving, people are still ex- escaping. Mm. And it also remains to be seen whether the, the peace still holds. I mean, we hope that it does, and we hope that this is probably the, one of the last chances to really get a, a solution to the situation in South Sudan. But uh, yes, the movements will continue, unfortunately, until we really get to a point where people feel they are safe. Because if people don't feel that they are safe, they are always going to move to where they think they will be looked after and protected. Itai Viriri is the spokesperson for the International Organization for Migration. And he is in Geneva, in Switzerland. And he was talking to Jane Matebula there. Across the globe, every second, there's always a breaking story. Kultanjoy for Channel Africa Radio in Ethiopia's capital, Addis Ababa. For Channel Africa, I'm Lilian Strobach reporting from the ICC in The Hague. Reporting for Channel Africa, I'm Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. Our cutting-edge and hard-hitting journalism leaves no stone unturned, giving you the whole picture every time. George Muhango.
Channel Africa, Blantyre. This is Lansana Fofana reporting for Channel Africa from Freetown. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is Moki Kinzeka in Yaoundi. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. in Lesotho. Reporting for Channel Africa, Konyo in Nairobi. Join us every day and know what is happening around you. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. The program is Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. I'm going to be with you until 1800 hours Central African time. My name is Spumelele Zondi. Now, after about three years of construction, the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center in South Africa will officially be open for public in early 2016. The center is associated with over 300 organizations and institutions worldwide that are engaged in Holocaust and Genocide Education and Remembrance. A building dedication mem. A ceremony was held today, which also included a handover of family artifacts to the museum. The center's founder and director, Tali Nates, was born into a family of Holocaust survivors and urges society to remember and learn from history so that same mistakes are not repeated. So I'm very, very happy to announce that this morning uh, there was a building dedication ceremony of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center. And what it means is that the building is basically almost finished. It's probably 98% finished, just a few little things to finalize. But uh, we could, for the first time, show the building to all the partners that made that milestone possible. The donors, the partners, such as the city of Johannesburg, people from all walks of life that partner with us, such as the Holocaust survivors, the Rwandan genocide survivors, that were all there today, very emotional, very happy to see a center that will speak about genocide, that will teach about genocide, about to be open. You've just picked up on my next point. I was about to ask if you could elaborate more on this center. We know that it will showcase the Rwandan genocide and the Holocaust. If you could elaborate more on what people can expect to find at the center, what's its significance really? So, as I said, today was the dedication of the building, and the building, of course, is the first step. It took us about three years, just over three years, to complete the building that in itself is full of symbolism, symbolism of genocide, such as the railway lines, the railway carts that are symbol of genocide, but also of colonization. There are many, many symbols in the building. But the next stage towards the opening early next year to the public will be to install the permanent exhibitions that will tell the story of what genocide is, uh, because the word genocide, of course, is a new word. It was only invented in 1944. But we will start with mass murder that happened in Namibia in 1904, before there was a word. We'll tell the story of the Holocaust, of course, the story of the genocide in Rwanda that targeted the Tutsis in 1994. And then we will link it also to issues South Africa and Africa is facing today around issues of xenophobia, racism, homophobia, and other issues of intolerance and human rights abuses, such as we see, highlight it, teach 
the youth and um, the public about the dangers of, of genocide, the dangers of uh, the fragility of democracy, why we have to safeguard democracy in our country and in our continent. Why is it important for people to still learn about the Rwandan genocide and the Holocaust? What lessons can be learned from these historical events in terms of how we deal with issues that we are facing nowadays? Xenophobia, for example, in South Africa. The importance of genocide is immense because genocide, of course, starts with words with dehumanization, with calling the other a snake or cockroach. Um, it is about learning about early warning signs. Where do we have to safeguard for those early warning signs from developing into huge violations of human rights and indeed into mass murder, rape, kidnapping, and targeting of minorities? This always is so important in South Africa, but throughout the continent, it is important to learn about the worst case scenario, the darkest chapter of uh, men's inhumanity to men, but it is important to learn about the warning signs and see where we need to work more. Our center deals with memory, with education, But more than anything, it deals with lessons for humanity from this dark history that we will learn in the center. Telenate is the director of the Johannesburg Holocaust and Genocide Center, and she was talking to Jane Matebula. Now today kickstarts the National Pharmacy Week in South Africa under the theme Chronic Diseases Take Control. This annual campaign aims to, among other things, raise national awareness and educate the public on various aspects regarding medicines. Amos Masango is the registrar of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa. Yeah, I think some of the reasons is that in many times we find that patients do not know the preventable uh, risk factors, you know, that go with the chronic uh, diseases. But sometimes people also wait too long for the diseases to be diagnosed or do not take their medicines properly. The preventable risk factors I'm I'm talking about here are things like the, the blood pressure, high blood pressure, the high blood cholesterol, overweight, things like the major behavioral risk factors such as the health, unhealthy diet, physical inactivity, tobacco use and the like. What is it that, I mean, people can do to really reduce their chances of uh, contracting, you know, a chronic disease? I know that you've mentioned tobacco and that's a big problem. You know, people are addicted to that. So what is it? What are the many ways that we can actually assist ourselves so that we don't get these diseases? Yeah, the first step, however, is getting a timely diagnosis mm. and, and taking your medication and everything properly. And of course, you know, then you, of course, supplement that with the, with the right diet, you know, the exercise and other lifestyle changes, like as I've mentioned, you know, the issues like, you know, looking at your weight, you know, the issues of physical inactivity, tobacco use and, in, and things like that. Now, how far have we come as a country in terms of curbing the scourge of chronic diseases, and are there any noticeable strides that have been made? Well, I don't have figures as far as the strides that we have made, but suffice to mention that, for instance, in 2002, the Health World Report about reducing risk and promoting healthy lifestyle 
indicated that the mortality, morbidity and disability attributed to to major chronic diseases accounted for almost 60% of all deaths and 43% of the global burden of diseases. And then there was also a projection that by 2020, the contribution of these chronic diseases is expected to rise to 73% of all deaths and 60% of the global burden of diseases. And I think it's also very important to note that 79% of deaths attributed to this disease Mm. occur in the developing countries. So you can see the task that we are actually faced with. Now, just before we let you go, do you think that the contribution that pharmacists uh, make um, to the health and well-being of people of uh, South Africa is actually valued? Remember, the pharmacies are found almost everywhere, you know, except maybe in the most rural areas sometimes of, of the country, which is, which is what South African Pharmacy Council, we are trying to have pharmacies almost everywhere. The pharmacies are quite helpful in advising patients on taking their medication, also providing screening tests for early detection. I mean, the interventions, the reversals, like, for instance, of diabetes, heart diseases, cholesterol, and uh, they provide quite a variety of healthcare services to the patients by providing medication, I mean, education, and information about different diseases, including chronic diseases. That is Amos Masango, who is the registrar of the Pharmaceutical Society of South Africa, speaking to Zikona Miso Ela today. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Here's Onelenzinti with your headlines. Chad executes 10 members of Nigerian Islamist militant group Boko Haram. More soldiers are killed in Mali's Timbuktu fueling concern at simmering violence following a breakdown in a peace accord. And Kenya works on laws that will make those found guilty of doping to be deregistered and prosecuted. Channel Africa News, I am Onelinsinsi. Thank you very much, Onelay. It's 17.30 Central African time. That gives us another half an hour of Africa Digest. We're going to be with you until 1,800 hours. Now, despite the fact that about 158 countries have set the legal age for marriage at 18 years, laws are rarely enforced since the practice of marrying young children is upheld by tradition and social norms. This is what came out of the Psychosocial Support Forum currently taking place at the Victoria Falls in Zimbabwe. The conference discusses the psychological impacts of social ills on children. To date, an estimated 3,900 young girls are child brides. Delegates are confident that ending child marriage would also help countries achieve other millennium millennium development goals aimed at eradicating poverty, achieving universal education and combating HIV-AIDS. Here's Nyaratai Kumbovzana, Goodwill Ambassador for the African Union campaign to end child marriage in Africa. 
The global figures are shocking, but what is even much more shocking is the African figures because uh, Africa is the highest number of countries with prevalence on child marriage. We are talking about countries like Niger, which records that 75% of all its girls are married under the age of 18. In southern Africa, within the Sadak region, we see countries like Malawi, Mozambique, uh, here in Zimbabwe, 30%, Zambia. What is shocking for me is not just the marriage itself, but also that this is actually sexual abuse. This is child sexual abuse that we are providing a normalcy by calling it a marriage when actually it's it's a crime. It goes against our being, our morality in many big ways. But also it speaks to how many girls are dropping out of school. I really appreciate that the African Union took the decision to launch a campaign to end child marriage on the continent because it's a moral imperative and it's a political imperative. And now talking about the campaign that you say the African Union has launched to end child marriage, a very important uh, point that you made during your presentation was that many a times governments do make um, policies, whether it's on a regional level or a national level, but um, a lot of times it's the implementation um, that lags, and you spoke importantly about how there must be accountability um, from the different governments around the world. Africa is rich, damn rich, filthy rich. That's where the accountability starts. I don't understand why in my Africa our daughters have to opt to marry when they are 15 as an option to get out of poverty. When we have diamonds, we have oil, we have gold, we have potential in agriculture. Africa needs to put its house in order. So we need to use Africa's resources for the daughters and sons of this continent to have an opportunity. That's the first accountability. Second is for any country to be peaceful, for any country to have security, the greatest security of a nation is when its young people are educated and have jobs. So we should actually reduce military expenditure and put money into education, food security, create jobs for the young people so that child marriage is not used to get out of poverty when we know that our economies, with the little we have on Africa, we can afford to send our children to school. Your mother was a child bride herself. Um, this is obviously something that's very close to your heart. When my mother was talking about her own experiences and would sit around the heart, she said none of her daughters, the seven of us, would experience what she went through. And she made us to commit that none of our own daughters can go into child marriage. So it meant one woman who had experienced child marriage took a vow that in her own generation, her own children, her own great-grandchildren cannot go into child marriage. And therefore, it takes us to have those community compacts social compacts within each family. Let's speak out against the practice within each community. Let the village headman say, not in my village. Let the chief say, not in the area that I am responsible. We give each other psychosocial advice. We provide counseling. If a family says, oh, we are so poor, they are assisted to 
have other forms of getting income after all how much can you survive on lobola men these days don't even pay enough lobola <laughs> so even that notion that you have to you're going to get money from lobola and get out of poverty is a myth um, you get $1000 how can you get out of poverty with $1000 let's talk about what sort of psychosocial implications um child marriages have on these young ladies and and maybe let's look at an instance where their husband then dies and then they become widowed or they get divorced what then happens to their children or in instances where they get married into polygamous marriages how does that then pan out in my YWCA work we have what we call safe spaces so girls come in they share with us their experience i don't think we fully understand some of the psychosocial issues one little girl said mommy she ran away from home and she she says i'm afraid she said, what are you afraid of i'm afraid of seeing a naked man we're talking about a child who says i don't know what sex is he just forced himself on me we're talking about rape of our little girls which lives with them forever because their first sexual encounter mm-hmm. is with somebody they don't know or they don't like or they are not ready and they have to live with the trauma of rape and not a single rape rape which is sanctioned by their families and their community it means they can they've nowhere to go the little girl in malawi she was 8 months pregnant she came to the ywca and she said i'm afraid because i don't understand how the baby will come out of my body i'm just so scared she was so scared of giving birth the doctor said she had to go for cesarean section because she could not have natural birth we're talking about little girls who are on in polygamous marriages maybe she's wife number 4 she's wife number 5 she comes into that family she controls nothing she cannot negotiate safe sex Nyarati Gambonsvanda is the Kudu ambassador for the African Union campaign to end child marriage in Africa and she was talking to Komotsomopulan The African Development Bank has unveiled its plan to empower African women in agriculture. Geraldine Fraser Mulegedi is the special envoy on gender and the Department of Agriculture and Agro-Industry of the African Development Bank and she says the plan prepares the ground to empower women to take a leading role in the business of farming and agricultural value chains regionally and globally. She says agriculture is poised to remain one of the most important sectors accounting for around 25 percent of the continent's gross domestic product. The African Development Bank commissioned a study that looked at economic empowerment of African women through their equitable participation in the agricultural value chains. And through the study we looked at what the cross-cutting constraints are that women face across the subsectors of the value chain in products such as coffee, cocoa, cassava and cotton. We on looking at that also looked at the opportunities to overcome these constraints and to increase the income of women because after all there's a recognition that agriculture is the second largest sector in Africa. 
that accounts for 25% of Africa's GDP. We also know that it's projected that this, that agriculture, will reach $880 billion in annual revenue by 2030. And then we know that it provides the greatest number of stable jobs on the continent after government, and 62% of economically active women in Africa works in agriculture. And this makes it the largest employer of women. What are the challenges with regards to women getting a better deal with regards to their contribution towards agricultural production on the continent? Yeah, when you look at production and you look at farming in particular, we know that women have a limited access to land ownership. They have limited access to improved inputs limited access to mechanized farming equipment, and then there's also limited knowledge and use of agronomic practices, and that's in terms of training. When it comes to infrastructure, we know there's insufficient infrastructure on the continent, and this affects both women and men. And here we're talking about unreliable electricity supplies, We're talking about poor roads. We're talking about limited irrigation. Then thirdly, on financing, there's limited access to financing. It's for men and women, but for women to a larger extent. And then a fourth area is the issue of access to markets. And we know there's been poor coordination across market actors. Because, you know, when you look at the value chain, you look at farming, you look at processing, and you look at trading. And this requires coordination of the various players. On government policies, there's a concern that generally both the regulatory and policy environment is seen to be gender neutral. And we know that doesn't work when you want to have a big leap in this area. And then lastly, women also face time constraints because first and foremost, you find that in many instances, they have to work on the land of their husbands. They also have household obligations and hence time to work on their own plots are quite a problem. And if one would look, and let me give you an example. As you are aware, I'm linked up from Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, Ivory Coast. So right now, when we looked at the cocoa study we did in Ivory Coast, we know that at the moment, the number of laborers on the cocoa farms, 32% are men, 68% are women. However, when you look at income, the 32% earn 79% of the income and women only get 21%. And now, how is this plan going to uplift the small-scale women farmers? You know, the study had identified three cross-cutting themes where the African Development Bank and its partners can have a significant impact in empowering women in agriculture. Now, firstly... We've got to grow the number of small-scale agribusiness entrepreneurs. And we should do it, as we discussed earlier, through training, by providing access to finance, 
by improving market links. And in cocoa, cassava, and coffee, we've identified opportunities to create large women-owned agribusinesses in higher value downstream activities of the value chain. In the discussions we've had with some of the global players, there's also a recognition that there's a need to bring women into cooperative farming. So it's not going to work for every woman to work on a small plot. We've got to get women to come together, either in co-ops or looking at agribusinesses to a large degree. A second opportunity is to increase incomes by increasing productivity and training women. And this must be done in core business skills. So we must ensure that women get greater and better access to the income generated as a result of their work by improving productivity for smaller or older farmers in the four sub-sectors that I've identified, and particularly for small-scale processes in cassava and by establishing women-inclusive cooperative programs in cocoa, cotton, and coffee. I'd also want to give you an example. There's a woman in Nigeria, Cynthia Ndubuisi. She's an entrepreneur. And she's developed a way to convert the cassava peel that's normally thrown away into nutritious goat feed. And in 2013, she founded what's called KPC, Kadosh Production Company, that transforms the peel into marketable, low-cost products for livestock feed. And you must know that in 2013, 53 million tons of cassava generated 12 million tons of peel. And this was seen as a useless byproduct and bint. And it also released more than 10 million tons of toxic carbon monoxide. This woman saw the opportunity and she's created a business out of it. And this is the kind of thing that we believe should be supported across the continent. This empowering of women, is it uh, empowering them in order to be able to produce cocoa, coffee, cotton and cassava in those sectors, as you mentioned, for export purposes or is it for trade within the continent itself? It's for both. We actually look towards women being able to develop businesses and to do so for intra-African trade, for also ensuring that there's a level of food security on the continent, particularly when you look at cassava. But we also want to look at global trade. That was Geraldine Fraser-Mulekedi, who is the Special Envoy on Gender and Department of Agriculture and Agro-Industry of the African Development Bank. On the line from Abidjan, I request talking to Wandile Kalipa. It's time for your economic news.
Thanks, Pumelele. The Infrastructure Africa Business Forum is currently underway in Johannesburg, South Africa. The forum is set to unlock economic growth potential in Africa's infrastructure sectors, particularly in transport. Humuzo Modise is South Africa's Deputy Director General for Transport at the Public Enterprise Department. Africa is currently the fastest growing economy with a population of over 1 billion. So transport infrastructure and particularly air transport will be essential going forward in supporting the economic needs of, of communities in the region. I think there will certainly be more initiatives of introducing scheduled flight services across the country. The driver of this wave is emerging partnerships that we are seeing between airlines and government administrative structures for driving the local economy. Analysts have urged African leaders to re-engage China and persuade the Asian giant to embrace the continent's push for industrialization and diversification of its economies. This as China prepares to stage a grand military parade and commemoration of the 70th anniversary of the end of anti-Japanese war and the Second World War. The event will take place at the Tiananmen Square in central Beijing on Thursday. It comes at a time when China is facing a major economic slowdown. Chief Executive Officer of Frontier Advisory, Martin Davis. What we're seeing now, however, China is sort of starting to cool off growth. Uh, Ultimately, it's a good thing to move away from quantitative, simplistic headline growth to more uh, qualitative growth, albeit reduced. So China's growth is dropping, so Africa needs to reposition as well. So how does Africa, how does South Africa start to engage China in terms of this new commercial reality? Clearly, we to an extent are still dependent on the commodity story, commodity exports to China. But as mentioned, as China's changed, so must we. I think this should come through beyond the, the, the celebrations taking place of our anniversary in Beijing this, 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 this week. South Africa's manufacturing sector is in a recession after contracting for two consecutive quarters this year. Today's manufacturing survey shows that the sector may remain under pressure for the rest of the year. The Butler's Purchaser Managers Index fell 2.5 index points in August to 48.9 points from 51.4 points in July. Dimakato Lishoro reports. Load shedding, weak demand, plummeting commodity prices and high input costs have brought the sector to its knees. August PMI reflects a sector under immense pressure. The PMI dropped below the key 50 mark, signaling a contraction. Except for the new sales orders, all of the PMI's major subcomponents deteriorated in August, with the business sub-index falling to its lowest level since April to 48.6 points. Manufacturers are also less optimistic about conditions in the coming months. This resulted in a sharp drop in the expected business conditions in six months' time. In Johannesburg, I'm South African mobile operator Vodacom says it cannot be forced to uphold a promise that one of its directors made, adding that the person had no authority to make it in the first place. This is uh, the cell phone giant's defense to a remuneration claim that one of its former employees, Kenneth Makate, is pursuing. He says he came up with the please call me concept, which continues to reap profits for the cell phone giant. The Constitutional Court of South Africa has reserved judgment. Vodacom's lawyer, Fanny Silius. That can't be the law and it will upset commerce completely. What would a company do if it heard that one of its employees had effectively issued a preference preference share to one of its other employees? Let me say you, 
you, this is insane. As Mr. North Craig said, the penalty for that would be death or dismissal. And the buyout firm Actis has bought South African furniture retailer Corey Craft. This marks the latest deal by the private equity investor to tap Africa's fast-growing consumer industries. Financial details of the deal were not disclosed. Actis has already uh, nearly has a 7.6 billion US dollars in assets under its management and is one of the biggest private equity players in Africa. Its investments have included development of shopping malls and consumer-facing industries. Africa's consumption prospects have been in the spotlight since at least 2010 when Walmart stores announced a deal to buy into South Africa's mass mart. The deal gave it a foothold in several African countries. And that's your economics news for now. It's time for sports news here. Time to close. Thanks for joining us in your sport. Let's start with soccer, where defenders Tulani Shajwayo has been in withdrawn from South Africa's Bafana Bafana squad. That will face Mauritania in the 2017 Africa Cup of Nations qualifiers, as well as the 2015 Nelson Mandela Challenge clash against Senegal. Shatlao is struggling with a thigh muscle strain and has already undergone an MRI scan, which confirmed the injury. He is replaced by Supersport United defender Clayton Daniels. In the meantime, two players at doubtful status, Tulani Serrero's clubs Amsterdam, has written a letter to the South African Football Association uh, Safa to say that he is injured. Tepo Masilela of Kaiser Chiefs has not yet reported for national team duty after his club sent a communique informing Bafana Bafana that his left knee has fled up again and will need some rest. Both players have been requested to come to camp for medical assessment. But Safa CEO Dennis Mumble admits that getting the teams to bring their star players to take part in this annual tournament is a challenge. What drives our planning uh, on, uh, around the friendly matches is, will this be useful to the coach? Will this match uh, be useful to the coach to, to assist him in what he wants to achieve in the official competition? And now in rugby, the official date for the Springboks team's arrival in England for the Rugby World Cup is set for September the 12th. Rugby World Cup on Tuesday confirmed the arrival dates for the 20 participating teams, Pacific, Na- pa- Pacific Nations rather, uh, the champions, Fiji, will be the first team to officially arrive in the host nation on September the 9th, nine days before they open the tournament against England at Twickenham on September 18th. With teams allowed to arrive officially up until September 16th, the box opted to arrive exactly a week before they opened their campaign against Japan in Brighton on September the 19th. And finally, the cream of South Africa's athletes will be in action at the Diamond League meeting in Zurich on Thursday. Wade Faniergerk, the 400-meter world champion, Sunet Felyun, the bronze medalist in the Javelin at the World Championships, 
and Wenda Nell, the 400 hurdles finalist at the World Championships, could be in action, and their respective events will almost exact repeats will be the exact repeats of their World Championship finals in Beijing. Hotsomukwena, the finalist in the triple jump, will also be competing in the long jump in Zurich. That's the end of our sport. Stay tuned to Channel Africa and back to Spumelele Zundi. This is Africa Digest. Seventeen fifty-five Central African Time. Let's recap our top stories. Burundi police claim to have seized weapons and ammunition after a massive search operation. The second Africa-Japan Investment Forum begins in Ethiopia. In economics, Actus has bought a South African furniture retailer. And in sports, South Africa's Bafana Bafana Camp update. And that wraps up Africa Digest for today. From myself, Spumela Lezondi, producer Luanda, Mohamed Technical Producer Catherine Malika, and the rest of the team. Thank you for listening. Send us emails in for channelafrica.co.za, SMSs plus 27796957930, and tweets to Channel Africa One. We leave you with Ngege Balunge by Sipogas.